The views and opinions of the guests of Veterans Archives do not reflect the views and opinions of Veterans Archives, its subsidiaries, or its partners. Hello and welcome to Veterans Archives. This is a podcast where you can learn about our military history in the words and voices of the men and women who lived and created it. I'm your host, Bill Krieger, and let's listen to our next story. We are here today. It is July 12th, 2023. We are with Joe Soar, or retired First Sergeant Soar. Cool. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm never feeling better. So today we're going we're gonna to talk about where you're from, um, a little bit about your, your childhood, your you're growing up and like why you joined the military and uh, some, of you, some of your experiences and then we'll finish it up and, okay. and uh, talk about a little bit what you want people to take away from our conversation. Okay. All right. So, so tell me about where you're from. Oh, I grew up in Greenville, Michigan. Um, grew up on a small farm up there. Uh, my dad had a couple hundred acres. The farm had been passed down through the generations. My dad had... Ten brothers and sisters. He was the third youngest. And all of his older brothers and sisters had kind of went off to college and did their thing and left. And he was the one that decided to stay and stick with the farm. So, you know, I, I was raised on a farm. I grew up, uh, you know, I'd have to, you know, feed cows and do chores at 5 a.m. before school. You know, I think about those times a lot because taught me hard work and, you know, just that, you know, certain things have to get done and that's just the way it is. So, yeah, um, grew up on a farm, went to a Catholic school, uh, St. Charles. I remember my parents were dirt ass poor, but they always made sure that I had a Catholic education, which, you know, always stuck with me just for you know, no other reason than when time gets hard, times get hard. We have that, you know, central connection. But, uh, yeah, I went to Greenville High School, graduated in 1994. And I would say that, you know, I, I had a, uh, how do I put it? Uh, I was like quite a wild kid. Um, you know, was known for throwing like massive parties out at the farm, things like that. But I awesome. remember being, yeah, it, we used to have, oh man, my open house for when I graduated from high school is legendary. We had over 600 people there. It had, we went through a cow, we roasted a cow, a pig a deer, and ran out of food by, like, 6 o'clock. You roasted a cow? Mm-hmm. An entire full cow, yeah. One of, and one a of pig. yours? Mm-hmm. Did you, so you knew the cow before you roasted <laughs> of it? Of course, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was a beef farm. Yeah, grew up on a beef farm. Um, and a deer, you know, just to, my dad and his friends would always build things like these big roasters and cook that kind of stuff. So we could throw massive parties. It was a lot of fun. But I had more fun than anybody, I'd say that. But I noticed after high school, my friends were going off to college. I was just still like didn't really have a plan. And, you know, this whole partying thing that I spoke about, um, another one of my friends' parents had went away for the weekend, which when your parents tell you they're going away for the weekend, they're not. They're not. They're coming back. So that's what happened. We all Catching threw in the act of throwing a party. Right. Yeah. He came in. His dad came in, and he there were kegs of beer, and people had thrown up, and there were all kinds of stuff. Like, just the house was trashed. I mean, it was a mess. And my best friend's dad, you know, just lost his mind on all of us. 
And he started yelling at us, and he's like, you guys don't do nothing. You sit around, you get drunk, none of you got jobs. You're all going and talking to the recruiter right now. Back up. My best friend's dad was an E7 in the 1073rd Maintenance Company, Jerry Vansickle. Love him to death. Still think about him all the time. Yeah, uh, he's the best. Uh, And his grandfather, they've wrote books about his service in World War II. He was the most, you know, uh, one of the survivors of the company. Had had the most consecutive days engaged in combat. But, um, you know, so they have quite a family legacy. But his dad, you know, yelling at us and putting his finger in our face and drugged us all up to talk to the recruiter. And I'll never forget it. I'm sitting there like, oh, man, like half embarrassed. Like, what am I doing here? And then I got to listening to it, and I was like, man, this is the perfect fit for me. You know, I was the kind of kid, if you'd asked me what I was going to do when I was a kid, I'd have said, you know, I'll be a Marine or something. You know, I just service had kind of appealed to me, but I just hadn't met a recruiter, and I hadn't had the right set of circumstances unfold. So as we're sitting there, you know, with uh, 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 Jerry up there with us, and we're all listening to the recruiter. So who was sitting there with you? Some of them. Yeah, all right. It was me. Ben Vansickle, Andy Kinsley, and Sean Freeze. And uh, the four of us all just sitting there listening to the recruiter. And out of nowhere, my buddy Andy um, you know, just snaps up and says, yeah, this, this sounds awesome. I want to do this. And I looked at him and I was like, you know, we were all inseparably close, like undescribably close, us four. And I remember thinking, well, I'm not going to let you go without me. And I, so I was the second one, and I said, yeah, if you do it, I'll do it. And Ben, you know, right there, and then Sean said, yeah, I'm going to wait a minute. Sean didn't end up joining that day. Well, the three of us all just said, yeah, what do you need? Filled out paperwork, did the stuff, scheduled the day at MAPS, went down, took our ASVAP, and joined, just like that. I mean, within meeting the recruiter on, like, a probably a, a, a Friday, we probably enlisted by like Tuesday or Wednesday of the next week. Like it went really fast. Um, went down there, flew through maps. Everything was great. And due to some certain circumstances, Ben um, didn't ship when we all went to ship. Like he didn't go to the same place as me and Andy, which kind of sucked because, you know, we all thought the three of us were going together. And we got to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for boot camp. And that was just me and Andy. So were you able to do like the buddy program? Yeah, they had said it was a buddy program. But what happened was, I I, I can't even make this up. The line in front of me, Andy was the person in front of me. He was the last person they took for that company. And I was the first person they took for the next company. So he went to like Alpha Company. I went to like Bravo Company. You know, however it broke out, that separation of basic training. We didn't say anything. And then later on, one of the sergeants came up and they said, hey, you were on this buddy program with your friend. Uh, do you want us to try to get you back together? And I couldn't like blue falcon him because he was a week ahead of me. So I just said, no, we'll just keep it that way. So we we weren't in the same company. Um, and, and in fact, that little week separation set us all apart. So we were never together in the same company in AIT either. He was always, you know, the, the uh, actually, no, he was a week behind me. I said that wrong. I must have been the front person online. He was always the week behind me. And I ended up after graduation, I did wait an extra week there so I could go back with him. But, um, yeah, we went through basic and AIT together with my four best friends. And I think about those times, like us being in the National Guard were some of the best times in my life, you know. And being able to have in all those experiences and do those things that you do in the National Guard, those ATs and grayling and all that, to have that with my four best friends in the world, it was just unbelievable. 
so we did that for, I don't know, three, four, five years. And Andy, they came out with these promotion lists called EPS. It just came out. It was a big thing. Andy was number one on the EPS list, and I was number two. But he was in college at the time, and they got a, a seat to go to what was called PLDC, then Primary Leadership Developmental Course. It was the E5 course. And he didn't, you know, he couldn't go. So they asked me if I could go. And I did. I went and I passed PLDC and I got promoted to E5, like, you know, right away. And then when I got promoted to E5, I started looking at it and they had these AGR jobs opening up. And I thought, man, you know. Golden handcuffs. Yeah. I'm like, I, I well, no, I, I actually I worked in the prison because if you're, you know, the, uh, a corrections officer, you know, the Department of Corrections will hire up a vet in a second. I mean, with paramilitary training, you know, it's super easy to get into the DOC. And uh, when I got out of college, I, I was working as a probation officer in Ionia County. Um, and it, they didn't pay very well. But the where, state. Where did you go to college at? Montcalm Community College. Okay. At that time. Um, and then, you know, I got the internship through them and then, and then they transferred in. I remember his Amy Garvey was the probation officer I worked with his name way back then. I can't believe I still remember that. But, uh, then I just left to go work for the prison because, you know, my wife was pregnant and I had to do something. I had to make, you know, some, some decent money and corrections officers get paid well. They, mm-hmm. and they do. But I did that for about three years and I didn't like it. And in that time when I made E5, uh, there was a guy named Don Dexter who worked with me at the prison as Chief Dexter. Uh, he ended up retiring. I don't know if he's retired yet or not, but he's a warrant officer uh, uh, on the tech side. But he looked at me one day and he said, hey, you're in the guard, right? I said, yeah. He's like, you ever look at those tech or AGR jobs? I'm like, no. He's like, you should look into it. These are some great jobs. He left the prison to go be a tech. Within months, I'd applied to be a recruiter. And they had an opening in Traverse City. And I got called and got offered the job. And me and my wife have always been the kind of people that do like to move and experience different things. So I accepted the job in Traverse City, you know, like right off the get. Within about a week of taking that job, but I hadn't started yet, I was going through the end processing. We found out that my wife's mom was diagnosed with cancer. No. And yeah, and you talk about a real blessing. Uh, when I was in processing, they had fired the recruiter in Greenville. The, my unit, where I'm from, my hometown, they had fired him and they hadn't replaced it. So when I was went to Lansing for in processing, I said, hey, that job in Greenville's open. Can I get that? And I said, we just found out my wife's got cancer. Now's not a great time to move. They made a couple phone calls. The sergeant major walked in at the time, looked at me, and I told him that. They grabbed my orders right in front of me, and I'll never forget it. And they set my orders down on the table and crossed out Traverse City and wrote Greenville. I never worked in Traverse City. I never reported. So, like, that was my end processing, and I went right to Greenville. Um, You know, the guy from Greenville, to talk about a win-win for me and the Army, because it was wild, some of the things I did in recruiting there. The guy before me the year before had wrote 12 enlistments, and they fired him because he only wrote 12. Back then, you were expected to write, you know, uh, 24. And I wrote 12 enlistments in my first 90 days of being on the job. That's awesome. Nobody could figure out how – nobody knew how I was doing it. You know, people look at me like, what's – you know, they they couldn't believe it. I hadn't been to recruiting school. I was just setting the world on fire. And, and, well, they didn't know. I was just talking to my friends. I knew everybody in that town, everybody in that community. Grew up there, lived there my whole life. And I just, like, 
set the world on fire. And recruiting, I look at some of the statistics, looking back on it, on how people, you know, just wondered how I was able to be so successful and just knowing that community and, and, and working my butt off. But uh, it was a natural fit. And I think that's important because like anybody that's in the service, you know, you find like there's certain things you're good at and certain things you're not. And like looking at you, like, and when you, you know, like your time in, you know, funeral honors and knowing you as long as I have and your attention to detail is off the charts. I mean, those are the kinds of things that, you know, you always look super sharp. The reason I'm just saying like you tend to find something that you're good at in the military. I was never really that great at anything like I was at recruiting and at recruiting. I was an absolute superstar. Uh, the, my first nine years in recruiting, I finished in the top five every single year for production that I was there. I never won the director's 54, but I finished second or runner up for it multiple times. Um, but that said, I mean, it was just, you know, it, it just came to me. I was just really, really good at it. Uh, flew through the ranks. I made E7 by the time I was 27 because, you know, it's really weird. Yeah. They just really young to have, yeah, I, you know, I would average for a period of time. I averaged about 36 to 42 enlistments a year, um, which is really, really high. The average mission, again, like I said, was about 24. Uh, so, so again, it was a great fit, right? Like it was good for the Army. I was writing a lot of contracts for them, and it was great for me because I was home with my family, and, and I loved it. So I got to spend 10 years of my life supporting that the 1073rd Maintenance Company in Greenville, you know, a unit that I grew up with that I loved that meant the world to me. And, you know, just supporting uh, and being there for, you know, all of those people that I knew. It was just phenomenal. Uh, you know, like I talked about Jerry Vansickle. He stayed in as the mess sergeant for, you know, another 10 years just because of us. But like everything in your military career, all good things must come to an end. So I got an E8 slot offered to me and I had to leave Greenville and I had to go out and like live in the real world now. And I always count, remember that promotion so much because it changed my life. I went from being able to, you know, go golfing or having a lifestyle to one of leadership where, you know, just the amount of time and investment you have to spend. It's just uncomprehensible to me, like that I, I just didn't have like any free time anymore or any life. But that's it. I mean, if you want to have a career. So yeah, in 2010, I took a promotion to go down to Fort Custer and supervise the Southwest region area of recruiters, uh, known as the Mustangs. Um, Man, we, you know, uh, I took over the first year. We were team of the year. The second year, I think we were runner up, had a lot of success down there and I had a lot of fun. And, you know, after a while I, I moved, it took me about, I don't know, a year or so to, to figure, you know, to get things around and get my family in a situation where we could sell our house and move. But I wanted to be closer, you know, driving from Greenville to Battle Creek's 89 miles one way. You know, it got mm -hmm. old. Back roads, too. Back roads. And yeah. yeah, that was the only way to take was the back roads. If you took the expressway, you go way out of your way. So, yeah, mm. you take the back roads. And uh, it just it just wears on you, driving that far and being away from your family. So we made the commitment to move. And uh, we bought a house in Hastings, Michigan. And Hastings was a cool spot to live because now I can work in Grand cool Rapids. downtown, yeah. Grand Rapids, Battle Creek, um, Lansing. I could work all three of those from my house in Hastings. But the real cool thing about, you know, my experience in the military, you know, from probably, you know, from 2010, 2011 on is that I was able to keep my kids in one high school. So, you know, we could live there and they all graduated from the same high school. That was priceless to us. 
But uh, yeah, so I moved to Hastings. I literally uproot the entire family, pack up, move. We lived there seven days in the house we bought. Uh, we bought a house on a lake in, in Hastings. And yeah, it was the seventh day that I lived there when I got notified that I was deploying. And that's just classic army, right? Mm-hmm. Like out of nowhere after you're going to PCS your family and move. Yeah. And oh, by the way, you're going to Africa. You're going to West Africa. So I uh, uh, deployed on a joint deployment to um, Liberia, of all places. You know, uh, dirty, um, arguably at the time, the poorest country in the world. That was a culture shock. And what an experience, man. I'll tell you, you will never experience freedom like that anywhere, you know, except uh, like a deployment in a foreign country. I was in a very, very remote jungle in Liberia. And I think about all those crazy things that I seen on that deployment and experienced. And when I say total freedom, I mean, it's just the way it was. Um, you got to think in terms of a country that doesn't have power or like running water or the things like, you know, how you're, you know, when it's dark at night in Africa, it's truly dark. Like it is pitch black. You can't see anything but the stars and the moon. Truly beautiful. And just, you know, I just never really seen anything like that or experienced anything like that in my life. Um, the African soldiers there were so loyal to me. It's really hard to describe, but we had like a bond that's, you know, the, um, anywhere I went, they almost kept like a circle around me. It was almost like I felt like I was Keith Richards. When I say I was in a remote jungle, I was. Uh, there was only, you know, there was me, another American counterpart, and two Marine Corps uh, advisors there as well. So we were post advisors to their entire training command. I was there to help them set up. I was trying to help them set up and establish their first ever um, NCO professional development courses. So we were setting up, a, a like I said earlier, PLDC. Now it was called WLC, Warrior Leadership Course. We were trying to set up an NCO development course. And we spent about the year planning that, getting it together. And we actually ran our first course before I left. But that was it. For So there were just no Americans, just us in a very remote jungle. You know, I think about that, um, you know, uh, you know, in some of the lessons learned in life, you know, I was driving through the jungle one day in a, a in a Toyota 4Runner, like, pickup. They look different. You know what I'm talking about? Those, like, white ones that are real boxy and they got the yep, smokestacks that come up through the top. So that was my truck. And it was, you know, a stick shift, but rough riding, just – but um, I was driving through a jungle and just to uh, see some things and – my window was up, but I think about how close I was probably the closest I've ever came to, you know, getting croaked. And I heard this loud whop on my window and I look and there's a snake like this with its mouth open, fully open, hitting my window inches from my face wow. to attack and kill me. It was a black mamba. You ever seen the movie Kill Bill? I have. Okay. Black Mamba, deadliest snake in the world. There is no cure. There's nothing. I mean, that's it. You get bit by a mamba. Let's take a quick break. Veterans Archives is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and we rely on donations from our listeners. If you are enjoying these stories and would like to support our continued efforts, please go to www.veteransarchives.org and select the donate button. Thank you. You know, 
sucks to be you. You That's crazy. So, yeah, and there it was, inches away from me. Uh, You know, and it just shook the living crap out of me. I was shaking and like, man, if I didn't have that window down, or if I would have had the window down, you know, but again, you just got to be smart. You know, you don't know where you're at. Keep the window up, you know. Yeah, I would But, uh, yeah, uh, some uh, other, oh, I got a lot of Mamba stories over there. I walked up on one of my uh, African soldiers one day. I was like, what are you doing? He said, I'm fighting a snake. And he was hitting it with a stick. I'm like, that's a mamba. Like, they, but they, they don't care. To them, it's food. So, like, I tried to, I told him to get away from it. And he's like, no, that's, I mean, that's dinner. Okay. He did. He, he killed the snake. They know how to kill him. They're barbecue, not afraid of him. Barbecue like we are. mamba. Yeah. Oh, yeah. While I was over there, I ate mamba, cobra, anaconda. Go through the jungles on a run over there and you see these giant anaconda trails, you know, kind of blows your mind. Like, Whoa! What did what did I get myself into? How did I? What am I doing here? Yeah. How, so how big are those? Uh, the reality? one that I saw was twelve foot, and they called it a baby. They said it was a baby. But as soon as I called the trail, I told my soldiers. They like found out where it lived, hunted it down, and killed it for food. Like seriously, like that's a big deal. Uh, any kind of meat over there. I mean, again, the poorest country in the world, right? Like, like how thick is it? Like that? Thing. Yeah, yeah, about like that. I'd say, yeah, 10 inches or so. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they're Scary. huge. But that's, and like I said, they they said that was a baby. You know, some of them grow, you know, they grow to be quite big, I guess. I don't know. To me, um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, a lot, lot of snake encounters over there. Uh, I ran over a green mamba once in that truck. I wished I would have had a belt made out of that, you know, because a green mamba is this really crazy, bright neon green. But uh, yeah, so I was... Fort Custer, working down there for seven days, out of nowhere, get pulled, sent, deployed, 393 days overseas in Liberia, and then uh, I came back. And when I came back, um, my team had changed a lot. There's a lot of leadership changes. Like, things had changed. It was tough to, you know, adjust on the fly and come back and get back into the swing of recruiting. Um, from there, <coughs> I want to say I left there to become the uh, – State retention NCO around 2000 and I want to say 2014. Uh, I went to become the state retention NCO and man, that was a cool gig. Made a, a you know a lot of changes and a lot of differences. You know, I even I had a thing that I came up with where I found these high quality. Um, what kind of knives are this? Did you ever get one of those benchmades? You know. Did you ever get one of my retention benchmates? You know what I'm talking about? I, I can't remember if I did or didn't. You remember those recruiting challenges I did when I was the first sergeant, like the sunglasses yeah, and stuff I still like have that? Them. You know how my, yeah, my challenges were always like really cool items. When I was in retention, I came up with a benchmade like knives, like real, you know, and then it's hard because you can't spend more than $75 on an item in the military. So I had to get creative about how I purchased them. But, uh, we did those that those stupid knives, and they caught, they ended up bought them in bulk, and they ended up being like a hundred and thirty bucks a piece. But what I did is I created a roster, like for every single person in the state of Michigan that was in their ETS window, and I made sure that every person that was on that roster got issued a knife. So I never gave those those stupid knives out to the chain of command. I never gave them to. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't want them ending up to, you know, Someone to all their else, friends yeah. and their buddies. Yeah. I wanted them to go to what they were intended for. Because we did it like that and the state retention team, we narrowed it down. 
we were really able to like have some amazing numbers. That was the most significant thing I did. We, we really did. We were uh, averaging, you know, a 10% attrition loss rate. That's really, really good. You know, um, we had gotten to the point to where we were national leaders in most of the retention categories. So I was, you know, pretty good at that. So I you know, led to um, me getting an opportunity as a first sergeant, and that's you know when I worked for you, um, or worked with me. I worked with. I you. worked for you. Oh, well, the other way around. I worked for you. That's the way I always looked at it. But uh, you know, uh, um, and it's kind of neat. You know, like now I work for uh, this agency. I work for the Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency, and that was when you know Jason Rogers was the company commander. Now. I have history with this guy. Me and him went to uh, BNOC, which is your E6 school, way back in like 2007 and 2008 together. We didn't know each other. We met each other at that school. And we just ended up being like best buds at this school. And um, I just found that he's the kind of guy that always brought out the best in me. I always saw the best parts of myself. I always wanted to smile. I always wanted to be happy working with him. So when I found out he was the commander and I had the chance to be his first sergeant, it was incredible. And, you know, still to this day, uh, we had that that year that we all had together was the best. You know, our, uh, we finished that year 106% emission, and that's the best a company's ever achieved in the last 20 years. I think I was I was 118%. Yeah. And I remember I remember going to OU and I'm sure you're gonna remember this. We went to OU for a career fair. It was me and you, Jason Rogers and Eric Albright. Okay. And me and you would sit out front and we got like forty three leads. <laughs> and I think five or six of those eventually not like right away, but yeah. Enlisted, so oh wow, yeah, that's impressive. That's I remember doing that with you. That was the, oh, the, one of the best events that I went to in my recruiting experience. It, that was some of the most fun. We did have a lot of fun on those trips, and you know, getting out and seeing things. Our company stretched from Port Huron to Holland, you know, uh, so it was like all the central middle part of the state. So it was kind of weird, you know, how we were structured, but. We would have to usually go TDY when we would come down and stay with you guys. But remember those trivia nights and yep. like seeing Red Wings, yeah, every Dino time, Cicerelli, yeah. yeah, those were great, man. That those times were priceless. That was one of still to this day that was my favorite assignment, the most fun I've ever had. Uh, you know, things was changed. A fun year. Yeah, you know, um, things changed, and um, I came out high on the EPS list for E nine, so. You know, I, I left, I went back, gave up the diamond because I didn't need any more diamond time um, and went back, you know, and enrolled in the Sergeant Majors Academy. And, uh, you know, I think about that a lot as I go on in my career. And I was telling this story to someone else earlier today, you know, and I'm just going to tell it. And I, uh, My battalion had counted on me, you know, taking that slot. And I was getting close to retirement. But if I took that promotion, I had to owe the Army three more years. And I was looking at where I was getting in my life. And I was like, man, I'm getting a little bit older. I'm getting to a point to where I'd always promised myself I was going to retire young so that I could do a second career or make the most of it. And every day that I'm spending in uniform is like a day I'm taking away from that. So I kind of hedged my bets. And I had a job that I really wanted which is the job that I have now, 
that was coming up, but I wasn't selected. I had to take a chance to apply for that. And I wasn't going to, I didn't really necessarily want to retire just for the chance at applying for a job. So I had another job to cover, like another really, really good job. Uh, to make sure that I was covered no matter what, you know, I was going to be there, you know, be able to take care of my family no matter what happens when I retired. And, you know, uh, uh, so I made the decision to retire. So I go in, wasting time here, but go in and I go and tell my battalion commander and we shut the door and we have this one-on-one. Who is the battalion commander? Garn, Lieutenant oh, Colonel Garn. Alex okay. Garn. Um, he's a friend of mine. He's somebody that, uh, he, he's very demanding, but he's, personally behind closed doors, me and him are actually pretty tight and we're pretty good friends. So I was kind of shocked that he was so mad and so angry. Like, what the hell are you doing? You know, we don't, why are you retiring? You know, we're counting on you. Like, you know, and, and, and you hit me with all these really hard, weird feelings about this retirement. And I just leveled with them. And I said, I laid out all my reasons, my pros and my cons for why I retired. And, you know, like, hey, this is not, you know, really where I saw myself. If I take this promotion, I owe you three more years. That three more years is three years that, you know what I mean? I look at that. I'd be coming up on the end of that right now. I would just be just now being able to retire. And I'm so much further now from, you know, my real goals. It was the right move for me. No regrets whatsoever. I'd do it again. The only regret I have is I wish I'd have retired sooner, actually. (laughs) But... Alex retired, and then he called me about three months after he retired, and he literally said out of nowhere, in the, in the coolest conversation, and he said, you know, I just kind of listened to you, and I listened to all of the points that you made, and I got what you were saying, and, he, and you're right, Joe, it was the right decision. You know, and I thought that was kind of cool, like meaning like, you know, when we join, right, like you, you put your country first and your family first, and you... But at some point, you know, you, you really need to make those things happen. And since I've retired, I, I just kind of feel like I've, I've been a great husband and a great dad. I'm always home, you know. And um, one of my last assignments supervising the RSP, uh, you know, I, I counted I'd work seven out of my last nine weekends. And it was just like it was just wearing on me and it was just tough. So like that military lifestyle. It's hard, you know, and uh, I heard you can't a sergeant, say no to something. You have to go and do it. Yeah. yeah. I had a sergeant major today at that event we were just at today that said, you know, he was talking about his his fourth marriage. And and I thought, like, wow, how lucky am I to have, you know, a wife that would stick with me through it. But the fact that I was able to do it. So, again, I look back on I, I think a lot about my military service and no regrets. I would absolutely do it again. Um, there's, I, I do everything the same way pretty much because it was such a great experience. I met the best people in the world, but you know, the fact that you, you qualify for 20 years and get a retirement, like, you know, to move on and do something else, just, just absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. Is So was there anybody that you, th- you think that was like impactful during your your military experience? Oh, you name it. So many great mentors, so many great leaders. I spoke about Jason Rogers earlier, uh, and that's a big part of the reason. He was retiring, and he got a job at the same agency. That he works here at the NVAA. Just to be able to work with him every day, that, that was important to me. But, yeah, uh, man, I can't. I've never seen leadership and mentorship like I had in the Army and, and some of those friends. Uh, you know, it's ironic that still to this very day, I still keep in touch with my recruiter. You know, uh, it was a guy named John Ellert. He was from Ionia. Um, 
And he was, you know, an uh, old AGR guy, just a super, super tight friend. And I look at some of the things like, you know, did you know Amanda Durst? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was her recruiter and, you know, her sister's recruiter. And just looking at like, and, you know, her coming up and then her like, enlisting my daughter's best friend um my daughter's best friend you know come out and she's like hey i need a good recruiter and the first person i called was amanda because i wanted her you know to but you know looking at like like that and those types of impacts and like just knowing people that you know having relationships and bonds and knowing that they're gonna you know do their best to take care of people and you know it's funny and then my other daughter ended up enlisting um yeah you know what i want to this is one thing i definitely want to say my proudest moment in the uniform is the last day I ever wore a uniform. Um, I got to go down to Fort Benning and pin second generation jump wings on my daughter. That was cool. Yeah. That was, that was uh, really I, cool. my retirement date was a uh, proud moment. Yeah. Was, uh, uh, September 1st or August 31st. And she graduated from jump school like August 29th. So I was still on active duty in uniform and pinned her uh, jump wings. That was Sweet. pretty cool. That's probably the only regret, honestly. The only thing that I would say, like, I wish I could have stayed in just to be a part of my daughter who's still in life, you know. But then again, she's got to do it on her own. She doesn't want, you know, to say that, you know, like, you know, she doesn't want to use uh, nepotism or, you know, try to get favors or, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Nobody wants that. She wants to make her own way and do her own thing. So she's at the uh, Marshall Street Armory now, and it's not condemned yet. But, uh, yeah, man, my daughter's kicking ass. I want to brag about her. She's, you know, she's in her third year of uh, MSU. She's trying to get into law school. She's trying to get a free ride into the, or a full ride through law school. And I wouldn't be surprised if she finds a way to pull it off. She's in Spain right now for uh, oh, okay. uh, learn abro- from abroad. Study class. abroad. Yeah. And MSU, if she gets caught speaking English over there in one of the classes, they'll fail her and send her home. And you know what I oh, said? Wow. Good, you know, <laughs> yeah, be hard, she, hard yeah, honor, so, right? yeah, she's been in uh Spain since May and she comes back August 1st, so we're getting close. It'll be nice to get her back home. So, has she thought about doing like ROTC or yeah? Anything? No, I don't think she wants a commitment, she just wants the educational benefits, you know. And I mean, like, rightfully so, right? Like, as a dad, I've never given her any money, like, she's never taken out a student loan. The guard's phenomenal, you know, yeah, it's great. especially for Michigan State because it's so damn expensive. Yeah. So yeah, no, just a great choice for us. So I don't think she'll. Yeah, I don't think she wants the commitment. I wouldn't be a bit surprised if she gets out after her six years. You know, her time's up. I think she's just you know trying to use what she can to get through, to get through law school, and then you know, because if you do, well, there is Detroit College of Law. Yeah, and then Wayne State. Wayne State is, is yeah, the legit. probably the best yeah, one yeah. As, as far as U of M and Wayne money. State are the best two in Michigan. Does Estat pay for? Mm-hmm. Yep, okay. Mingstap does. Yep, Mingstap. Does. Yep, she. Yeah, yep. She already looked into it. So, yep. Up to it's still the same. You can only claim like whatever it is, fourteen thousand dollars a year. But yeah, it counts towards law school, so it would help. But if she gets a full ride, you know, you know, yeah. So yeah, yeah no, no one people will help too. Yeah, but no, I don't see her with any. You know, like uh, does desire to go to OCS or or to do anything above and beyond. I mean, maybe. Well, I take that back. She's a paralegal, and she just loves – she'd probably be a JAG attorney. 
But, uh, you know, she might be a JAG attorney for the guard if, you know, she can get it full time and here in Lansing. Then she might stay in. Otherwise, I I just don't see it being a fit for her. You know, not with what her plans are, but hey. We'll see when the time, they change their mind a hundred times. Yeah. At least I know I did at that age. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Man, I've talked a lot. Um, Well, I want to talk talk a little bit about the MVAA or Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency. And kind of talk, tell me a little bit about what you do here and how you help vets and the impact you can make. Yeah, very cool. All right, so the Michigan Veterans Affairs Agency is the central coordinating agency for veterans in the state of Michigan. Whenever you have a question, you know, like, hey, I lost my DD-214, we can print them off for you on the spot. You know, I'm, you know we, we're the central coordinating agency, which means we make connections. So where do I go for this? How do I file a VA disability claim? What do I do? Where do I go? We, you know, set you in the right direction. What I do is I'm the employment analyst. It kind of makes sense. You'll get it, you know, coming from recruiting. It's all about workforce development. And that's what I do now. You know, I help connect employers to great talent. So I work with organizations. I don't work with veterans every day. I work with businesses uh, all day, every day to incorporate veteran-friendly hiring practices, uh, help them set up things like SkillBridge, um, you know, registered apprenticeship programs so that veterans can use their GI bills, things like that. So I work with uh, some of the greatest companies in the world, you know, Ford, Meyer, Consumers Energy, you name it. I mean, some Rocket, I can go on and on and on, Spartan Nash, Steelcase, Hayworth, some of the biggest employers around and, you know, get to help them set up the uh, policies and programs that take care of soldiers. Here's a good example of one I just did, you know, worked with Spartan Nash on yesterday. Um, they wanted to know how to apply for our gold level status and they have to meet, you know, they, they don't allow continuing healthcare for deployed service members. Did you ever deploy okay. yep, to Cuba? Okay. You know how, when you, you deploy, if you have a civilian job and you use them for your medical insurance and now you have to go on TRICARE, it requires all new doctors, right? It really mm-hmm. sucks when you deploy. So we work with businesses to help them, you know, just institute policies that offer the, their employees to keep their same insurance, things like that, so you don't put that hardship on the family. Yeah. Um, we work with organizations to do things like differential pay because a lot of people make more in their civilian job than they yep. make in the guard. It's just the way it is. So we work with organizations to help offset that pay You know, for the financial burden on your family while you're deployed. You know, If you're making more at your job, there's a good chance You know, if you're an E4 and you work at Ford, you know, where you make more money at. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, having that, you know, setting up those kinds of veteran friendly policies. And then I help, you know, work, um, I work with organizations to help write job postings to be more friendly, you know, things of that nature. But, um, we have a program called our veteran friendly employer program and I certify it bronze, silver, and gold, just like the Olympics. To put it into perspective, I got 589 bronze today. Um, and 25 gold. Think about that. It's just, it's hard to achieve that gold status. So that's the point. Like as you come in, it's very easy to come in at bronze, but as you start to change your policies and the things that you're doing for, for veterans out there, then you can elevate your status. And then we, you know, allow you, we give you the logo and then we allow you to market yourself. Uh, you know, use our logo on your website. We market your organization through NBAA. So. But yeah, that's it. I mean, I'm working with employers all day. 
And you're help, helping make an impact for those veterans mm-hmm. in the state of Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Just trying to make, you know, uh, more opportunities, better veteran-friendly employment. But you think about it, um, one of the best veteran programs, hiring programs out there is the Consumers Energy, you know, the Powerline Boot Camp and the Gas mm-hmm. Boot Camp. And you talk to consumers and you're like, why do you invest? It's a union. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, I mean, you think about it. They need physically fit dudes. You know, they need men and women that can climb poles. You can, you climb up a you know a utility pole. That's no joke. So you know they're and it's not easy to find a demographic a demographic of society that has a level of physical fitness. You know, it's like standards. And if you're in the guard or reserves, you know you're going to meet standards, and that's it. So that's very attractive to these employers. Like, hey, we know we can get physically fit people that can do the job. So they want to specifically market to that, and that's how those programs were created. But you know, and you think about it from the employer's perspective. You know, um, you know, weed's legal in Michigan, right? I mean, I hear people gripe about drug tests two, three times a week. You know, it, it, it's a real problem. Yeah. But if you hire from, you know, guard, reservists, or recently transitioned service members, you know, in They're the military, free. yeah, you're not smoking weed in the military. You're just not, you know. So, like, understanding those you know, what we have to offer and that, you know, that veterans are, you know, getting organizations to understand that veterans are leaders who can make decisions, you know, who are ultra focused, but also understanding that they come with their own sets of issues, right? PTSD, you know, VA issues, things like that. And what does an employer do when they experience that? Where do you go for help? You come to us. So you come, when I say the NBAA, you know, full circle, full circle. Exactly. The answer is always yes, and we're here. But again, when we do these things, when we implement these processes, it just boosts companies' retention because it's doing the right thing. They're taking care of their vets. So it's it's pretty worthwhile. So as I sit here and talk about it, now you know why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah. You know absolutely. why I love this job so much. Awesome. Yeah. Well, is there anything that you would like to add to what we talked about? You know, yeah. Out of the four of us that all enlisted that day one, um, you know, it's it's funny. All, all four of us at some point were AGR. All went AGR. I was the first one to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, told everybody else about the AGR program. Like, hey, you got to get on board and thinking about that. And, you know, you know, I come through full circle and I look at, you know, and you wonder how your life's going to turn out when you're in high school with your four best friends. Um, Andy, the one sitting next to us. Um, was struck by a, a roadside bomb in Iraq and, you know, suffered from a TBI, um, massive TBI. And he was never right. He was never the same from that, you know, and just seeing like him and he, he ended up, uh, he was a police officer. That's what he did in the civilian world. That was his job before he went AGR. And then he always stayed as a part-time police officer, but he was the one who was the, um, the best looking, he was the brightest of all of us. Like he had the world. I mean, he was the smartest one. Like he scored a 90 something on his ASVAB, super good looking. And, you know, and then, and then that, that, you know, happened. And, um, I always felt like, you know, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a hard thing to say because I don't know, but, um, he started, you know, he got into drugs. He started self-medicating after the after the IED, after he came back. And he, he died from an overdose. And, Sorry you know, to hear that. Yeah, you know, and you think about that and how, you know, one little thing can change everything. I always say, 
you know, the TBI, he wasn't the same. His, he just, and he was so smart. I just always kind of felt like he couldn't understand what was wrong with him. He like, he could never figure out why. And that's why I felt like he got into drugs just because he never, you know, like he could never come to terms with what it was, why he wasn't the same after that explosion. It just never, you know, and I'm, and, and I'm not saying that the, it was a suicide. It was not, it was an overdose, but he knew what he was doing too. And, and I think he just started self-medicating because he couldn't understand why he felt the way that he did. And just a personal thing. I think about that a lot because, you know, I mean, he was my best friend in the world and, you know, and then um, Ben, my other best friend in the world, um, he had a heart attack in the middle of a PT test. <laughs> True story. Wow. In the middle of the two-mile run. <laughs> Talk about falling out. Yeah, ambulance, full-blown grabber. Uh, so, anyways, he had, that ended up leading to a – he was a training NCO. Um, he was an E6 training NCO up at Greenville at the 1073rd. And after that heart attack led to a series of, of downhill events, he just – medically, you know, he couldn't – you know what I mean? He couldn't recover from it. He yeah, couldn't, couldn't, you know. Serve. So yeah, he was he was medical discharge. And then Sean, the other one, he, Sean ended up joining. I said he didn't join the same day as us. That's true. He waited about a year and a half, and then he ended up joining later. But uh, that was very very cool to have him. Um, he actually is the one only one who went AGR into recruiting with me. And, um, you know, he just retired, uh, uh, well, yeah, yesterday was his last day that he had to do anything on duty. So I'm just thinking about those four guys right now. I had, you know, I served with Sean for 15 years working side by side together every day, you know, with somebody who's, uh, you know, his mom and my mom were best friends growing up. You know what I mean? That's how yep. deep our roots go. And, uh, you know, just looking at it like, wow, what we, you know, what it all, and, you know, looking at it and when I said, would I do it again? Yeah, absolutely. I do it all again every day. But just thinking about that and those impacts and how it all played out and where we all ended up, you know. But again, it was just that uh, having the opportunity to go through that together. They actually wrote newspaper articles about us. I think it was titled "From Kindergarten to the National Guard." So, oh, that's cool. Yeah, you know about about us all. But yeah, I don't know. I just felt like saying that. I guess you know, it'd be, it'd be yeah. hard not to talk about them. Yeah. So. Is there anything that you would, if anybody's listening to this conversation, is there anything additional that you would like them to take away from it? Yeah, if you're a veteran and you're listening to this, I mean, you know, it's just important that, like, you're not alone. And it's hard to find people to talk to. It's hard to find people to relate and, and uh, uh, find those experiences, but they're out there, you know. So, uh, you know, you know find somebody, talk about it, and then, you know, include it in your life and in the, in the right kind of level of where you need it. But the best thing that I would say about my military service that stuck with me is just, you know, you, you can't really make anything ever about you. It's never about you. It's always about what you're trying to do. Never the destination, always the journey. Just like you said, you you worked for me and you were my supervisor. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just, yeah, keep pouring into everybody else. And that's the only way you really get, you know, you feel that real sense of, um, yeah, it's totally worth it for me. Okay. Well, it was an awesome interview today. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. And uh, that'll be it. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate you uh, talking with me. Thank you for listening to another episode of Veterans Archives, the podcast that brings you the story of the men and women who have created and lived our military history. If you or someone you know served in the military and would like to share your story with Veterans Archives, please go to www.veteransarchives.org 
select the apply now button and fill out our application and someone will get right back with you. Veterans Archives is a 501c3 nonprofit organization and we rely on the donations of our listeners. If you are enjoying these stories and you support our efforts, please go to www.veteransarchives.org and select the donate button. Any donation is certainly appreciated. Look for Veterans Archives on your favorite social media. We are on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook. Just look for Veterans Archives. Like, follow, and share our page. We'd certainly appreciate it. If you or someone you know is a veteran and you are struggling with mental health issues, please dial 988 and select option 1 for the Veterans Crisis Hotline. Please be sure to tune in next time for the next episode of Veterans Archives.